All right. I'm so glad to be here. I mean, this is, honestly, this is surreal because uh, it's been a long time since we've done one of these things. I, uh, I'm so glad there's anyone here, much less 3,000 people. Uh, I told Matt when we decided to do this that we were just, this is really us sticking our toe back in the water of live events. Uh, I'm coming from Virginia where uh, we still haven't had indoor church uh, <laughs> So getting into Texas, you feel like this massive sort of sigh of relief a little bit, but also a little bit of like, I, should I be here? What's going on? How come it's, the reality is 180 degree different just up there? I don't know. I'm just going to go with it for this weekend. Since I've already had COVID, I can't give it to you. And I, I hope that's true, at least. I don't know. It, <laughs> If one thing's clear, one thing's been revealed, it's that we really don't, we still don't know much about this thing that we've been fighting. Um, but I am so glad to be here, and thanks for coming out, and thanks for those who are live streaming. This is the first time we've ever tried the live streaming thing, though um, I guess we've all become like television producers over the last year of really sort of subpar TV. <laughs> I hope this is a little closer to par, better than those like Bin Laden videos where all the churches were producing like the first couple weeks of, <laughs> of, uh, of quarantine. All right. Well, anyway, it does, I think it is a bit of a step of faith to be doing this, at least where I'm standing. So thank you for coming. <laughs> Refreshed. That's our theme. Does anyone here actually feel refreshed? You're getting there? Good. I mean, I, I know some people were having refreshments, whether that burrowed down into your soul yet. Uh, I, maybe it has, but not for me. I feel wiped just by life. I mean, do, do, are you with me on that? Like, this has been, since I last saw you, it's been, you know, not, um, nothing was expected. You know, I think it's, it's, a, it's been a great reminder that we have uh, so little control, but even less knowledge, because uh, who would have ever thought we would be in this situation? But here we are. And so to talk about being refreshed, I think, is almost wishful thinking. But it, it, like Christianity, I, hope is right at the very center of what we're, our religion. And so if we're going to act as though there is a refreshment coming, well then why not do it now when we're all so wiped? Or at least that's, what, that's where I wanted to live this next few days. So um, the title of this talk is the, um, what is it, the big refreshment the, big, the great reveal meets the great refreshment. And it's not like a Scooby-Doo reveal thing, um, though uh, that, would have been more, that would have been fun. Because Matt McGill is sort of a Scooby-Doo character. <laughs> right? He's got that, he's got that vibe. Um, <laughs> it was the musician in the foundry. Uh, so, but before we talk about what refreshment might look like, I think since I'm starting off here, I thought we would talk about what's been revealed. Because many, I think, uh, maybe you've heard, probably you already know this, but uh, the word apocalypse does mean revelation. Uh, 
And, it'll, and I wouldn't be the first preacher or thinker or writer to posit that we've been living through something of an apocalyptic period, maybe not in the sense of four horsemen, but certainly in the sense of things being revealed about the nature of reality and the nature of our very lives and how we live today, that is, some of it's inconvenient. Some of it's the stuff that we were really distracting ourselves to avoid. And some of it's really great stuff. Some of it's really great stuff. But for me, the 14 months that have been preceded this talk have been an exercise in, 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 in revelation, in, in things being revealed uh, that I would rather keep hidden but also maybe there's some healing involved in the very bringing of things to the light. So why do I say that the pandemic has revealed things rather than created problems? Because this is the first pandemic I've lived through. It seems like there's plenty of unique problems. The question of when to wear a mask, when not to, um, how much to you know, judge your neighbor based on how they're trying to figure it out, whether to hug, whether to elbow tap. I don't know what, people in Texas probably just been hugging up for like the last 10 months. But let me tell you, in Virginia, we're more standoffish already, and it's, we still don't know what's going on. It's like a sort of a <laughs> thing uh, whenever we see people. So there are new problems, and there are unique problems. But I'm more interested in thinking about what, it, what, are the, what are the eternal problems or what are the things that were already present that have been revealed. That's what I want to talk about tonight because I, 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 I think that it's the sort of situation where if you were unhappy before the pandemic, well, then there's, you, could have, you could have dulled that or you could have anesthetized yourself with hyperactivity and distraction and screens. But then all of a sudden, a lot of that gets taken away. And it's revealed to you just how unhappy you are or just how dysfunctional your work situation is or just how terrible your relationship with your oldest child is. Like these are the things that we were running from a lot of times. And then to be made to stop running, well, we, we were confronted with, um, with, uh, with problems that were already there. We were just avoiding looking at them. So in my experience, the vast majority of cases, the pandemic hasn't conjured up discord from thin air. It has simply revealed what was already there. So what has it revealed to us? Well, first it's revealed that we love having an excuse not to do stuff, <laughs> right? Show that first slide. Oh, this is, this is actually a different one. Uh, <laughs> This is Waldo can't hide from himself. It's a fake product that I think is very funny. Uh, you know, where's Waldo? And this is what COVID means to me. Because, uh, you know, when, when you're on a treadmill of activity and, uh, you know, social life or whatever have you, maybe it's church life, you can hide from yourself. But the pandemic sort of, it, it puts brakes on a lot of that things. And all of a sudden, my regrets go with me. He has done things, terrible things. I love it. Kind of dark, but here we are. <laughs> go, to, go to the next slide, though. This is a New Yorker cartoon of a woman who is high on canceled plans. This was pre-pandemic. But if you know that, you know, like, th there's a meme that goes around, like, you know you're an adult when your favorite kind of plans are canceled plans. Because you get credit for doing something without having to actually do it. And credit is really what we're almost always after anyway. 
So it's revealed to me, at least, that a lot of the stuff that we were doing, we were doing out of obligation and we didn't actually want to do. Uh, we love getting out of commitments if we can save face while doing so, if we don't get penalized somehow. It's the snow day phenomenon, which I guess Texas went through this year in such an such a extreme way. I shouldn't laugh. Like, I, I watched the videos. It was, you guys are not prepared. <laughs> you were not prepared. Um, at the same time, I joke a little bit here, but you know, what we're really talking about when we get high on canceled plans is that we're yearning for rest and we're yearning for simplicity. And those are two virtues that I think that, um, that the spiritual life affords that are maybe our modern pace of life, our, our smartphone-enabled, frantic lifestyle doesn't really allow for. And so there's something, there's something sort of like we can feel a little less guilty about stuff that we didn't really want to do in the first place, but there's also a sense in which we can pursue simplicity, we can pursue rest, and we were dying for the permission to do so, and the pandemic gave that to us. So for, to me, what I'm saying, it's revealed an, an enormous yearning for these sort of things. Um, and I think that so there is good and bad. Next thing, and I got six things. It, it, the pandemic's revealed a lot more than six things, but just for the sake of, you know, Christians like lists. Um, <laughs> second thing, go to the next slide, please. Um, I think it's revealed that everybody is stressed out and most people are seriously considering a massive life change at any moment. I, I, I don't think that's too much to say. Where I'm living, there's been so many changes in job, there's been so many relationship breakups, there's been divorces, but there's also been proposals, there's been a, a kind of a, a recalibration of love. And a lot of that's taken the form of puppies, yeah. <laughs> you know? In my, my case, we got a puppy. It, it hasn't been the, the love delivery system I was hoping, by the way, <laughs> like at all. But <laughs> I'm told I just have to wait. But I think what it reveals is that people are pretty, pretty unhappy, or at least we have an active fantasy life about getting to shift gears and get in that, that, that stranger's car uh, for a new life. And I don't, hopefully not that stranger, but you know what I mean. And right before, right, right when the pandemic hit, there was a wonderful article in the New York Times by a woman named Jennifer Senior, um, in which she noticed that disasters have a way of spurring emotional movement in all directions. And she was talking mainly about pregnancies and divorces, but what I've noticed among my peers, and I'm, you know, in midlife, is, is more in line with our values, which we're all workists, you know, we're careerists. So what, what I've seen is a lot of people uh, trying to figure out a new job and moving to a new place to get a new job or getting a promotion or leveraging some offer, you know, the whole thing. Um, so I, I, I think plenty of people have also lost their jobs and I don't want to in any way make light of that, but just as many folks have quit them. So uh, it, what that says to me is that um, many of us are yearning for a completely different life than the one we have. And that's one thing the pandemic has revealed. Uh, thirdly, um, I think we're addicted to narrativizing. This word narrative, 
I think it's taken on like a, um, a nefarious aspect in the last couple years. Now, what it's usually used in the form of media narratives. There's a pre-existing story, and so I have to go out and find the facts that fit that story. Now that is, we, 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 we sort of like blame the media for that, and we say, oh, that's, they're just after our dollars, and they just want to get people mad. But the only reason the media does it is because it's made up of human beings. And it's all of our tendency to, to fit the facts to our pre-existing you know, preconceptions. This is simply called narrativizing today. And it's become a substitute for, a, for you know, truth or reporting or journalism. And it's, it's, it, it's it just, it, I'm just referring to, it's revealed how deep uh, our instinct for constructing reality uh, runs. We construct reality in a way that's designed to make us feel better about ourselves, our choices, or simply to make us feel justified. And maybe justified in our, in, in our, in our biases or justified in our, our self-loathing. But this is the way that we tell stories and the way that we agree about what's going on in the world is so heavily infected with self-justification and confirmation bias that it's very difficult to really know what's, what's going on. In fact, the only stories I would trust, the only narratives I would trust if I were you are ones that acknowledge that. That we are self-justification machines. It's one of the reasons I, that I hang my hat you know, next to the cross because I feel that that is a full-throated acknowledgement of the fact that we are in the reality construction business and that we sort of need, to, that we suffer it. Because if anything, this is not, this is, it could be sort of a, 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 a tendency that we could laugh at a little bit, but in the past year, I think we've seen how, how threatening, actually, this tendency. It's not like, it's not benign. It's truly, in fact, some would call it diabolical. Okay, that's three. <clears throat> that's what's been revealed. The fourth thing that's been revealed is we are far more vulnerable than we care to admit. All of the conveniences of modern life, things like air travel that came on today, uh, the very fact of seeing other people, having easy access to toilet paper, <laughs> or bikes. I don't know if you, if it, Texas people don't really ride bikes, right? They do? Okay. I'm just kidding. Oh, Harley Davidson's. I'm not talking about those kind of bikes. In Virginia, I went to five bike stores looking for a bike for my son, and they're like, 2023 might be good. I was like, what? come on, yeah. Silicon Valley, let's disrupt the bike industry. This is pathetic. Uh, so yeah, all of this stuff that we thought was such a sure thing, such a sure bet, um, it isn't. None of it is. And we've all grown so accustomed to thinking to, that we should expect, or entitlement is one word, but what my friend Sarah Condon says, she, she says, I'm so sick of learning new things I was taking for granted. Like that's, she said, I just, want to, I, just want to, I just want a day off from finding out new things that I was taking for granted. Maybe you feel that way. I feel that way. Um, this is another way of saying, when I say that we're all more vulnerable than we care to admit, is that simply we exert far less dominion and control than we would like. And this was summed up for me in another one of these New Yorker humor, humor pieces. Could you guys go to the next slide? You ever seen this one? A woman has fallen down the street, there's a, a truck coming at her, and a guy saying, just focus on the things you can control. 
that's often what it feels like it, to be alive today, is to be told, just focus on what you can control, when in truth, you can't really control any of the things that actually matter. You, you, you can control whether or not to start at 7.30 or 8 as advertised, but you, you cannot control... Um, you cannot control uh, COVID. You cannot... <laughs> Uh, what does the proverb say? That uh, we make our own plans, but the Lord decides where we will go? I mean, huh, did we really need a deeper crash course in that? But we've gotten it. But even before COVID, even before the pandemic, life has a way of detouring people. You know, maybe you feel like your whole life is a detour. It may be a health issue or a job change or a relationship bust up, or it could be something more positive, like the birth of a child or an unexpected windfall, you know, an aunt you didn't realize you had, who died and left you a fortune. <laughs> the point uh, is that we're simply not the ones in charge of charting our own paths. And that's, again, a very sort of non-un-American sentiment, but it's deeply, deeply true. And the last 14 months have taught us that, that we are, we are limited, we are finite. We are what the Bible calls creaturely, not creators. We are hemmed in by limitation, by context, by systems, by our own history and biology, that this is, a, this is a something we would rather not know, but the pandemic has revealed to us. Uh, fifthly, I think that despite what the headlines tell us, there is still much that binds the human race together. Most of all, the experience of suffering. <laughs> Most of all, the experience of suffering. One of the things that I, th I loved at the beginning of the pandemic was this sense that we, we were so splintered and so thinking of everyone as different demographics and categories that to all be in the same boat for once felt great. And then Gal Gadot had to do that Imagine video and it all went downhill, you know? <laughs> But like for a brief moment, it was like the people in Hollywood are also struggling with, they also are quarantined. Did you ever see the one of Larry David behind like a, 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 a clear door and his daughter outside of it? I thought, gosh, maybe uh, stars, they're just like us. Um, but I think that the universality of acute personal suffering, it, it, it funds enormous compassion for our fellow sufferers and sinners. This is a lesson that we have to be taught over and over in a world that is always trying to stratify, stratify and create hierarchies of suffering. The nature of life is that ever, no one escapes, uh, no one gets out alive, you know? Um, we're far more alike in what keeps us up at night than we'd care to admit. Uh, it's just that our solidarity as a species is not derived from what we humble brag about on Instagram. Um, one of, Leon Wieseltier uh, wrote in uh, Liberties Magazine, he said, one of the consequences of recent social movements in America, and he was talking about Me Too and Black Lives Matter, has been to reveal how poorly we actually understand each other. Or more precisely, these movements have exposed the extent to which the failure to understand others may be owed to the failure to understand oneself, and specifically the limitations of one's own standpoint. What I mean by that is that we are defined not by our certainties, but by our blind spots. 
And that's where we find commonality. That's where we find understanding, fellowship, and love. It seems like something we want to walk away from and, and distract ourselves from. But this is really, this is what the pandemic has revealed, to me at least, as we watched all of this stuff play out. And I don't know about you, but it helps immensely to know that I'm not the only one who has no idea what's going on. You know? Like everyone, when you meet them, it turns out is just as bewildered and regretful as you are. <laughs> you know, you scratch the surface, they want to get in the car too with the stranger. But then they'd be there with you and you're trying to get away from them. So um, there is deep solace in that. Um, the writer Oliver Berkman <clears throat> put it this way. He said that in general speaking, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the kind that results from power disparities between groups, which has been occupying our collective life. We're talking about racism and sexism and economic inequality. But then there's the universal suffering that comes with being a finite human, faced with a limited lifespan and the inevitability of death, the unavoidability of grief and regret, the inability to control the present or predict the future, and the impossibility of ever fully knowing even those to whom we're closest. Our culture rightly focuses much energy on the first kind of suffering, but we increasingly talk as if the second kind barely counts or doesn't exist, even if every, as if everything that truly matters were ultimately political. But in fact, the personal, the personal suffering, that's what we're Googling at 2 a.m. Why won't she return my calls? <laughs> what did I do to my child to make them move to Tucson? You know, what, how do I get someone to come to church who doesn't want to come to church? These are the things that really occupy us. Again, it's in no way invalid any of the other kind of suffering. But from where I'm standing, I've watched as like this universal sort of, what do we call it now, languishing? Have you heard this term? Yeah. It was in the New York Times last week. That the low-key, low-level depression that people are feeling, that's like, it's not flourishing, and it's not like intense melancholy, it's languishing the sort of bleh feeling. Like, we're united in that, right? And we need some more things uniting us. So like, the United States of languishing it starts here. Uh, one of my favorite uh, musicians, Nick Cave, uh, he put it this way. He says, uh, he, he runs a letter, he writes some, he solicits letters uh, from people who are in pain and just, or just want to know about his process because he's, a, he's, a, he's a, both an amazing songwriter but he also lost a child who was very tragically. And so he's got a lot to say about suffering and it's not just whistling Dixie. And he says this, uh, he says, letter after letter comes in day after day, increasingly so during the pandemic and its recurring lockdowns from people distru suffering distress due to very serious problems. Mental health issues, loneliness, homelessness, physical and mental abuse, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, loss of dreams, loss of meaning, and loss of hope. It is a profound privilege to read these letters as it puts one's own struggles into perspective and is a reminder that despite our differences, no one is immune to suffering. But isn't that something that it's like people who read the Bible have an immediate entree into? Yes. The, the, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one for whom the, 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 the s sinful nature is not somehow touched, either as a, a victim or victimizer, or both. 
So that's one of the, that's the fifth thing. It's um, it's revealed. Sixth uh, and lastly, the, uh, I think it's revealed that um, no one can predict anything. You know, I couldn't predict that we would be having this conference. I couldn't predict that Mockingbird would be here. I couldn't predict uh, that people would be live streaming it. Um, and I think that's actually really good news. It causes enormous anxiety for in people not to know the future, because we presume that the future is bad. But what if you were a person? What is what is um, Frederick Buechner say about the resurrection? He says the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Uh, it's tremendously comforting to remember that the person who sounds oh so confident about our impending doom doesn't actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> Just scroll back to your own email from last April. What is it? 14 days. <laughs> 21 days. <laughs> 750 days. Because <laughs> there have been as many surprises as there have been that have been negative. I think that one of the things that has been revealed is a lot of wonderful things this past year. One of the things that Nick Cave actually writes in another letter, he says, my experience of actual people in this time has been overwhelmingly positive. There's a great deal of love and mutual regard and community. And isn't that funny? The thing that we, we most wanted to avoid has actually produced an outpouring of love and charity and Christian humility. So, um, just as no one saw any of this craziness coming, no one foresees most of the things of consequence in life. Uh, things like falling in love, or losing someone dear to you, or undergoing a conversion. And while you know, I never expected that we would have to press pause on like, in-person worship, at our church for 14 months. I also never expected that our parish hall at our church would become uh, a makeshift school for underprivileged kids without Wi-Fi at home um, in such a way that the larger community would start buzzing. I mean, that, praise God for that. One of the great quotes that we've gotten a lot of um, mileage out of this past year on Mockingbird, both on our website, and we just put out something called the surprise issue of our magazine, which will be for sale tomorrow, is a, something from a, uh, a comedian named Kyle Kinane, who says, a miracle is the universe letting you know it can still surprise you. And that's sort of framed in terms of grace. Grace is a surprise. It's the spoiler. It's the ending. It's the fact that the worst thing is never the last thing. Uh, Despair is the feeling that nothing can ever change, that our lives won't ever get any better. But our current circumstances, um, they contradict that feeling of despair 100%, because no one saw this coming, or at least to the extent, no one thought we would be in this situation. And if something like this can happen, then something good can also happen. Unforeseen. Your limitations are what defined you, not your strengths. So, this is, I mean, Leslie Jameson talks about grace as a pleasant ambush, which I really love that, a pleasant ambush. Usually you don't think of an ambush as pleasant, and yet we need something beyond our control, something kind of goes as a surprise if it's to be good. So what has, though, this is what it's revealed to sort of more on a collectively, but what has the, um, what has the past 14 months revealed to you about yourself? What would the person you live with say? 
what, 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 that, you, that you don't know who you are without your job? Uh, that your faith in God runs about a millimeter deep? Uh, that you're capable of both acts of charity and supreme selfishness that you never thought possible? That you're capable of getting taken for a ride completely by the sort of uh, fear-mongering uh, news cycles? I had, a, I had a, a family member say, like, uh, wake up one day and just be, I, I, she, she, she wrote into, <laughs> does anyone listen to the New York Times Daily podcast? She was so upset. She's like, you guys have been filling me with fear for the last, you know, I thought for a second that this was, that this was a good thing to be listening to. But there was a, there's one guy on that podcast who's taken a very negative view of COVID. And um, she basically said her mental health is in the toilet because of this one guy. And, you know, it may not be. I don't know. I don't listen to it. But it's, um, I thought to myself, she what, she, she, what revealed to her was that she was capable of, she was looking for someone to confirm her very worst fears. And that is a very powerful thing in people. I like want them to be true. And uh, that was something that revealed to her that was not pleasant. But what does it reveal to you about yourself? This, on the way here today, we saw a billboard that said, is your marriage worse than 2020? <laughs> it was for a divorce lawyer. That like sums it all up, you know? <laughs> you thought COVID was bad, but the real thing is you didn't want to deal with the fact that your marriage is falling apart. And but like, what a thing to say. Maybe that's what it's revealed to you. I hope not, but maybe. Well, all of the things I've tried to mention, I've tried to give a little bit of a positive spin, but for the most part, what we're in the realm of repentance when we talk about what COVID has actually revealed to us about ourselves. We are fearful, and we're vulnerable, and we are controlling, and we want to get by with doing as little as possible, and uh, we basically um, are trying to uh, uh, cope, with, blame other people for our suffering. Like, these are all things that are inconvenient. And so we're in the realm of, what, what, of repentance, and it's been a big year for repentance, don't you think? I never thought in a million years I'd be looking at people, like a crowd of people in Union Square in New York on their knees going like this, asking for, um, not forgiveness, but just repenting. And they're repenting for you know, various cultural and social sins. And it was, it was powerful. But I also, because you know, what is it T.S. Eliot said famously? He said, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. And humility is endless. We will never run out of things to repent for. We will never run out of things to repent for. But at the same time, repentance on its own is not enough. Repentance on its own is not enough. It may even be a euphemism for nihilism. In the book of Acts, we don't just hear about what, what has been revealed about humanity. We hear about what's been the revelation of God. Let's go to that. This is Peter. He's just healed a man, and people are upset about it. And he's really talking to the very people, it's understood, um, it's a Jewish crowd who were the ones who had been shouting crucify him a, a few, you know, a little while earlier. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? 
Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing. Here's what's been revealed. Here's what was revealed to these guys. Not some, no, not yet. Um, <laughs> thank you for all you're doing. Um, what has been revealed is, is what, what they're, they're not here to testify about their own powers. They're trying to make that very clear. The point is not the fact that this man has been healed. The point is that the Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. I always find it interesting when you look at Acts and you feel like, what did they choose to preach about? There weren't a lot of personal illustrations, you know? There weren't any jokes, that's for sure. I guess they were the joke because they were so inept. But um, here you have him saying that, that repentance this terrible thing that's happened, this crucifying of Jesus, of the holy and righteous one, and the preference for a murderer over that one, meaning like not just sort of a, a bad mistake, like the worst, you know, the, the, so far beyond good judgment. Um, well, th that is not the end of the story. This is a statement of conviction that is then saying, repent so that your sins may be wiped out, not so that you may go repent some more. So that your sins may be wiped and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So what has been made reliably knowable, what has been revealed to these disciples uh, was God's son the least predictable revelation of, God, of divinity possible, the baby in the manger who became the man on the cross who shed real blood uh, to deliver self-righteous uh, rule followers and self-seeking rule breakers from sin, death, and disease. I mean, no one, no one saw that coming, but it came anyway. This was a good surprise, a surprise from God. I want to say the last thing about what I think it's revealed to, and then I think it's an opportunity uh, for us, at least for Mockingbird, and this maybe this weekend, and as we contemplate what it means to, to live in light of what uh, Peter says here, is our, our fear of death um, is so uh, overpowering. And if you've been sitting where I've been sitting, you've, you've seen people, I, I was, um, it, all over, uh, the fear of death has, has motivated such, such um, extreme actions, and it's been so prevalent, at least to me, this thing that we never talk about, 
but um, it is so, our, our mortality um, is, is just, we're absolutely petrified of dying. And I think that that's what a lot of what we've all been going through this past year, and that's what's so exhausting. That's what wipes us out, is to be having to deal with the fact that we might die all the time. Um, it's not an acculturated or conditioned phenomenon. And it's not really subject to argument, I don't think. Uh, you know, for years I've heard writers and thinkers diagnose our culture of distraction as mortality avoidance. And I, I probably should have been more prepared for what, I've, what, what has been revealed in our sort of reaction to a disease and pandemic. Uh, what would happen when those distractions were taken away? But I mean, good Lord. It applies across the board, Christians, non-Christians. I haven't seen a really discernible difference, maybe in a few cases. Um, and I see it in myself. But the gospel that Peter preached is a gospel that includes a rebuke of death. And we don't take that seriously enough. We're too focused on life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. This is what they wanted to preach about in Acts. This is what's important. This is where the big refreshment begins. Not that we have a new, better way to live, but that we have the promise of the resurrection and that the death that we are scrambling to avoid in, at, with all of our energy, even subconsciously, is not the end. That's what motivated these, these men, these women. That's it, nothing less than that. And so, in the midst of this, the refreshment uh, that comes from that promise of the resurrection is also the promise of the wiping away of sins. All the stuff I've mentioned, all the conviction that I've felt, at least through what's been revealed in me, which I would rather have not seen, it is, it is, the promise here is that it would be wiped away. Wiped away. What would it mean to live like that if you actually thought that had been wiped away? I mean, can you imagine? I have a hard time. I spend, this, is what, this is why we come to church, to try to imagine what it would be like to live in light of this forgiveness. And that's why I invited John Mosley, by the way, to speak, uh, to zoom in for us on Saturday. If you, maybe, some of you have seen Last Chance You, the show on Netflix. So it's a show, um, it's not, I guess it's not for everyone. Um, <laughs> who, if you have a heart, I guess it's for you. But if... if <laughs> If you're unfeeling callous and really like unforgiveness, then you would not like the show. Um, Last Chance He was about a junior college in East LA. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a basketball program where the coach is a man named John Mosley. And if you know anything about JUCO, it's called junior college. It's, these are students who didn't fail to academically qualify for division one schools, but are really good or they've gotten in trouble with the law, or they've failed out of, a, they've, they've, they've flunked out of junior one, uh, sorry, division one. These are guys that are, what it's called last chance you because they have, it's their last chance. And uh, one of the great lines <clears throat> toward the very beginning of the show uh, is Coach Mosley talks about how people think basketball is something that can turn us into who we want to become but in his experience, basketball doesn't build character. Basketball reveals character. And what it reveals in a lot of these guys is that they're really not great. They got some real problems. The cards were stacked against them. They had almost had a no shot. 
but they have an advocate in this man uh, who, is, who is dealing with them after the law, after the reality has been, had they been revealed to be who they really are, which is essentially failures with one last chance. Well, there's one kid named Joe Hampton who is, he's basically on his fifth strike. And uh, he had a Division I scholarship. He lost his scholarship. He ended up in jail. And he describes like, his path like this. He says, I've hated myself for what I've done, disrespecting the game. I've had those moments when I explode and can't control myself. So I regret a lot of things. I regret a lot of things. I messed my life up. I was supposed to be in a position to help my family a long time ago. Instead, I'm here. I wish I did a lot of things differently. He um, is a repentant person, and uh, that doesn't mean he's a perfect person. We watch as he continues to explode and have temper tantrums. But he's met this man coach, John Mosley, who, as the players all say, he has this no-man-left-behind mentality, this no-man-left-behind thing. And, of course, it flows directly from the fact that he was one of those kids who grew up in... Uh, in uh, in the valley, and uh, only got out through basketball. But there is a last chance for them. Coach Mosley says everyone has given up on these players. He says, most of the kids I get, they only have one door, one window left, and if they make a mistake, that door is closed. And many of the kids have moments when they break down and ask for help, when they're cracked open by life, by the law that's written on their hearts, and they're in need of mercy. And thankfully, what we find out is that the law, the mirror, what's revealed, is not all there is. And their request for mercy is met by Coach Mosley, who constantly is saying the only reason he can meet them with mercy is because God's met him with mercy. This man is an evangelist like nothing I've ever seen. And by the end of this very, uh, you know, um, Remember in Jeremiah, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. John Mosley with Joe Hampton is in the business of doing that. Uh, the world remembers our sin. Uh, we remember our sin, our transgression. We have been confronted so powerfully with all of this lack and fear. And yet, that does not seem to dictate Mosley's response or God's response to you and me. He will not let us go. And most powerfully, he will remember our sins no more. They will be wiped out. The law that's written on our hearts is our constant companion. But the grace of God and his beautiful promise to remember our sins no more, this too is our even more constant companion. Coach Mosley says about Joe Hampton, these kids need love the most when they deserve it the least. It's not, oh, that kid sucks, he's a bad kid. These kids are dealing with a ton of demons, and they need love the most when they deserve it the least. As do you. As do I. And thanks be to God, that is precisely the refreshment we have received. Amen.